Please turn with me to the text for the sermon this morning, which comes from the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 2. The second chapter of Malachi in verse 14, where we read these words. Yet ye say, wherefore? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. And especially in these three phrases, the wife of thy youth, thy companion, and the wife of thy covenant. In the verse of our text, we find the Lord, through the voice of the prophet Malachi, admonishing his people for what he calls treachery, a treachery which the men of Judah have committed against their wives. And we see this from the context of our passage. Let's look together, starting in verse 11 of chapter 2 of Malachi. We read, Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. Especially this last expression, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. So you see, what we have here in our context in this passage is the Lord admonishing his people because the people have taken up wives, as it says here, from the daughters of a strange God. They have brought in women from other peoples, which they were forbidden to do, of peoples of of false religion, not of the true religion that the Lord had revealed to them. And so they married uh, women from the Canaanites, from the Hittites, from the Perizzites, from the Jebusites, from the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, as we read in Ezra chapter 9, verse 1. And as we continue, let's just walk through, uh, if you will, um, this passage so that we can get a better understanding of the context of the words of our text. And so we see, as it continues in verse 12, that the Lord will cut off the man that doeth this, that is, that commits the man who commits this treachery against the wife of his youth, that the Lord will cut them off, even the master and the scholar, out of the tabernacles of Jacob, and him that offereth an offering unto the Lord of hosts. And this have ye done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with crying out. Here the sense is that these wives, who have been so betrayed and so mishandled by their own husbands, go to the altar of God, and they cover, as it were, the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with crying out unto the Lord for this great treachery which is done against them. For you see, these men of Judah who were taking these wives from these other nations were either putting away their own wife so that they marry uh, one of these uh, foreign women, or strange women as, as the King James calls it, Or, perhaps even more grievous, 
they multiply their wives and they commit the sin of polygamy. And this is the treachery. Uh, this is the occasion by which they cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with crying out. And then it goes on to say, insomuch that he that is the Lord regardeth not the offering any more, or receives it with goodwill at your hands. So you see, the Lord is not accepting those religious sacrifices which the men offer in religious worship because of this treachery that they commit against their wives. And yet, in verse 14, as we continue, we read, Yet ye say, this is the Lord speaking now to these men of Judah, Yet ye say, Wherefore? That is, um, how is that, Lord? Why is it that you have not accepted our sacrifices? And and such, let me just say, such is the, the stubbornness and the hard-heartedness of men and women Sinners who are so committed to a course of sinful action that they do not see, they are blinded by the sin. Even when the Lord explains it clearly and admonishes them, they, they, they don't see it, they don't recognize their sin, and they say, wherefore? But the Lord tells them expressly, as we continue here in verse 14, because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. This verse has in it punches that should humble these hard-hearted men of Judah. Listen to these different expressions. The Lord says that he has been a witness between thee and your wife. That is, the Lord has seen all these things. Don't think, oh man, oh sinner, that you can hide this treachery that you've committed against your wife. And not only does the Lord see it, and he tells you that he sees it, but there's three more punches here with these parallel expressions, these parallel phrases, and this is what I want to focus on, Lord willing, in the sermon. The wife of thy youth. You have committed this treachery against who? Against the wife of thy youth. That is to say... Uh, your wife, whom you first joined in your youth, this dear friend that you've known for so long in your life, that is the one that you have betrayed and you've done this treacherous thing. And then as if by emphasis, it goes on to say, yet is she thy companion. Your wife, to whom you have committed this treachery, she is your companion, the Lord tells them. And thirdly, and furthermore, the third punch, he says that she is the wife of thy covenant, the wife of thy covenant. It's as if to say, here are all these arguments piled up against you. How can you be blind to the treachery that you've committed against your wives? And then he goes on to say in verse 15, and did not he make one, yet had he the residue of the spirit. Now, This may seem like obscure language, but because of the context, we understand the sense of it. And I'll tell you, when I surveyed in preparation for the sermon, various uh, classic Protestant commentaries, they all spoke to the same thing. There was no variance in terms of the interpretation of these words. And so I'll pass that on to you here. In verse 15, when it says, And did not he make one, that is to say, 
And did not the Lord God make one woman for the man? Did not the Lord God in the beginning from the garden make one woman and one man and join the two together in one flesh? Did he not make one? When God created Adam and then from Adam's rib he created Eve, he didn't also, the Lord didn't also create uh, Sally and Jane and Mary Lou. No, he created Eve, one woman. And then the next phrase, it says, yet had he the residue of spirit. That is to say, God had the power and the ability to make for man multiple wives, if that was his good pleasure, if that was in accordance with the infinite and eternal holiness of God, but it was not. So the fact that God made one woman for man is, is not because there was anything lacking in God's power or ability to make multiple wives, even from the beginning. And then it goes on to say, to give us a reason as to why God did this, why God made one man and one woman, one woman for man, and the two became one flesh, and wherefore one, verse 15, so that he, that is God, might seek a godly seed. So that the Lord God might seek a godly seed. Now, in our Westminster Confession of Faith, we are taught that marriage was ordained for three things. Three things. First, for the mutual help of husband and wife, which Lord willing, much of the doctrine today really speaks to that. I hope to speak to that because it has to do with the companionship between the man and his wife. But secondly, marriage was ordained for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue and of the church with a holy seed. Perhaps, indeed, the Westminster Assembly took this language from this verse in formulating this, for we read in verse 15 that the Lord is seeking a godly seed. By way of implication, consider this. That children from polygamous marriages, according to this text, seems to be described as illegitimate. That is, that if there are children which come from polygamous relations, it's just the same as if children would come from parents who are not married to one another. And so, why did God make one man and one woman and take the two and join them together in one flesh? Well, Here's a reason the word of God gives us, so that he might seek a godly seed. And the third purpose that the Westminster Divines give to us for marriage is for the preventing of uncleanness. As we read, for example, in 1 Corinthians 7, where the apostle tells us to avoid fornication, let each man have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And later in that chapter he says, If you cannot control yourself, it would be better to marry, for he says, it is better to marry than to burn. These are the three purposes that God, why God has ordained marriage. Now, speaking to the second one just a bit more as we see it brought up here in verse 15, I really like this quote from an old Puritan from the 16th century named Henry Smith. Uh, Henry Smith was one of the most uh, popular preachers in his day, He was known by this expression as the silver-tongued smith. And in his wedding sermon called A Preparative to Marriage from 1591, it's the year of his death, he writes or he preaches that marriage is called 
matrimony. And he says that this word matrimony signifies mothers. And the reason is because it makes the mothers which were virgins before. Do you see? This is one of the purposes of marriage is to take virgins and make them mothers. For such is the sense of the word matrimony. And that is the term for marriage. Let us continue then in verse 16. Well, I think we left off in verse 15 that after we read that the Lord is seeking a godly seed, then the Lord draws this conclusion again. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. Because of all these things, because your wife is the wife of your youth, she's your companion, She's the wife of your covenant because the Lord God is a witness between you and your wife because God never intended to have multiple wives for man because he sought a godly seed. Therefore, for all these things, take heed to your spirit, that is, to your thoughts and your affections, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. Verse 16, for the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. What does this expression mean? For one covereth violence with his garment. Well, again, what I found in my research on this text is that the sense of this is for those men who thought by, instead of putting away or divorcing their first wife in order to marry these strange women, if instead they held on to their first wife and added to her multiple wives, So they think that they are justified, so they have an excuse, so they, as it were, cover their violence with the garment, the covering, hiding under uh, the fact that they're still married to their first wife. But look at this language. Not only is, is it called a treachery, but this thing that these men do against their wives is called violence. It's a violence. It's a violent and treacherous thing, O men, for you to put away your wife. It is a violent and treacherous thing, O men, for you to multiply wives. And in our day, I think most of us are aware that polygamy is becoming more and more of of a popular notion in our culture. Is it not? We see uh, television shows that are devoted to uh, families who are polygamists. Uh, we read more about it uh, in the news. We, uh, we hear arguments like, well, if we, can, uh, if we can mainstream the idea of homosexual marriage, why not polygamous marriage? And so when we talk about these things, these are not relegated to some dark and dusty past in the history of Israel. No, the word of God is for us today. And I tell you, I would not be surprised if in our generation we see at least the beginning of the legalization of polygamy in our own country. And so this is a relevant text and word of God for us today. But let me get back now to our text. I want to look more in depth at these three expressions here in verse 14. The wife of thy youth, and actually that even that expression is echoed in verse 15 where we read the same kind of language, the wife of his youth. So there's this repetition, this emphasis. Secondly, the phrase, she is thy companion. And thirdly, 
She is the wife of thy covenant. Now, this expression, the wife of thy youth, you know, it's, it's really quite a remarkable uh, expression because it seems to me as we look at Scripture, interpreting Scripture, it's not merely the bare meaning of those words, the wife of thy youth, that is, the woman that you married when you were a young man, but it seems like that there is almost in an idiomatic sense, there is more meaning packed into this expression. And, and also, I think it's, it's quite uh, remarkable to see how many times and how many ways throughout the scripture we see the same expression or at least uh, a similar notion to this expression, the wife of thy youth. For example, and I'll just run through these just so you can get an impression of, of how many times we see this notion in scripture. In Proverbs chapter 5, verse 18, we also read, Let thy fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. It's the same expression that we have in our text here, the wife of thy youth. Also, don't think that the expression only means the wife of thy youth, that is to say, uh, the wife that you married in your youth, O man. But also in Joel chapter 1, verse 8, we have really the exact same idea. It's just turned around where it says, for the husband of her youth. So you see, you have the wife of thy youth and the husband of her youth. There's a picture that's, that's being painted here. There's, there's a construction being built as we look at all these different verses and how they go together and corroborate with one another. In Isaiah chapter 54, verse 6, we also read the expression, a wife of youth. And I just don't want to take the time right now to go into the context of all these different references because there's much, Lord willing, I'd like to get to in this sermon this morning. But again, just... Consider how this idea and this expression is used in so many places in Scripture. Also, in Numbers chapter 30, verse 16, we read of the, a wife who is in her youth, it says, being yet in her youth. Also, in Proverbs 2, verse 17, we read of the guide of her youth, that is, a reference to a woman's husband, that he is the guide of of her youth. So there's this idea in Scripture, unmistakably, I hope you see that this morning, there's a concept here in Scripture of an association between the idea of youth and the idea of marriage, again and again and again. We see that. The Word of God teaches us that throughout all these expressions, especially as we take them as a whole. Another place, which we read earlier this morning, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 14, and this is quite amazing when you consider how direct the, this, this call is from the apostle. He says, I will, therefore, that the younger women marry. Now, the context there is about young widows, but I don't think that at all minimizes uh, the, the fact that this is yet another place. We see in Scripture where there's this association between youth and marriage. And so, with God's help, I would like to open up the Word of God this morning using these three phrases that we find in verse 14. First, the wife of thy youth, and the doctrine from that expression that, Lord willing, I'd like to bring forth is that the best and proper season of marriage which God has appointed, is our youth. Secondly, the phrase, she is thy companion. That is to say, the doctrine from the word of God is 
that your spouse should be your lifetime companion, even from the time of your youth throughout the rest of your life. And so she is your companion, coupled with the wife of thy youth, to say that your wife should be your friend, your best friend that you've had from your youth. And so you have this lifelong friendship and deep and rich and rewarding friendship with your wife. And friendship is essential to marriage. Thirdly, the wife, this expression, the wife of thy covenant. And here we are taught from the word of God that marriage is a sacred and solemn covenant, that it is not to be disparaged, that marriage is not to be taken lightly. And so what I would like to do actually is to handle these in reverse order. So let us begin with that last expression first, the wife of thy covenant. And again, the doctrine here is that marriage is a sacred and solemn covenant not to be disparaged nor taken lightly. What does this term covenant mean here, the wife of thy covenant? For clearly... The power and the strength of this expression has everything to do with the sense of this word covenant, the wife of thy covenant. Well, our word covenant is derived from the meaning to come together or to agree. And so covenant has the idea of a formal agreement between two parties to either do something or not to do something. And oftentimes we find in covenants tied to that penal sanctions against either party who may break the covenant. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm saying that the covenant is something where two parties agree that they're going to do something or not do something, and if they violate the trust of that covenant, then there will be consequences. There will be penal sanctions. Penal, that is to say, uh, a form of punishment. That there will be uh, consequences to breaking the covenant. Now, biblically defined, covenant that word is translated from the Hebrew, barith, which has the idea of all things, this might seem strange to you at first, but it has the idea of cutting, to cut something. And that is that when the covenant is made, you may have heard of the expression of cutting the covenant, but when the covenant is made, the parties pass between the cut pieces of animal flesh, the, the pieces of a sacrifice. And the cut-up sacrifice represents those penal sanctions that are tied to the terms of the covenant. That is to say, it is like as if I was to take a covenant, and as I'm passing between these, these cut pieces of the sacrifice, it is as if to say, may it be with me, by solemn oath, may it be with me that I would be like this sacrifice that would be cut in two if I break this covenant. That is the sense. And we have an example of that, actually, in Scripture. If, if you would, please turn with me to uh, Genesis chapter 15. Uh, this is a passage that we read about between Abram, before he was named by the Lord Abraham, Abram and the Lord. And we read in uh, verse 7, And he, that is the Lord, said unto him, that is Abram, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, that is Abram said to the Lord, Lord God, 
Whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, that is the Lord, Take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, that is, he cut them down the middle, as it were, and he laid each piece one against the other. But the birds divided he not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away, so they would not disturb the sacrifice. Uh, and so then we read, uh, I'm skipping down to verse 17. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp passed between those pieces, those pieces of animal flesh. And so in the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. You see, now this this smoking furnace, this burning lamp, represents, I believe from the context, it, it clearly it represents the presence of the Lord God himself. So the Lord God himself, making this covenant with Abram, by, the, by this, this figure of a smoking furnace and a burning lamp, passes between the pieces of these, these animals that are cut in two. So now let's go back then to our text. And I just want to, to survey for you some of the classical Protestant commentary on this expression. From the Marshall Notes of the Geneva Bible, we read that she, that is the wife of the covenant, she is the one that was joined to you, the husband, by a solemn covenant and by the invocation of God's name. Also, in the annotations of the Westminster Assembly, we read that the wife of thy covenant is the first lawful wife, thy confederate between whom that sacred covenant was made, with whom, having spent thy youthful days, thou now beginnest to condemn and hate her in her old age. That's the sense. And it goes on to say, which covenant-breaking is a kind of dissolution of all human society. As you see, if you... If you break apart the institution of marriage, you will break apart the building blocks of society itself. In the Dutch annotations, we read that the wife of thy covenant is she with whom, by solemn covenant and obligation of wedlock, and by calling upon the name of God, thou, O husband, art firmly joined and indissolubly contracted. Now, there's a statement in uh, Matthew Henry's commentary uh, I think is worthy to be noted as he's commenting on the passage that we read earlier from 1 Timothy chapter 4 where we read that among the list of many things that the forbidding of marriage, the forbidding to marry, it says in that context in 1 Timothy chapter 4 is a doctrine of devils. The forbidding to marry is a doctrine of devils. And Matthew Henry's commentary on that point says that, so for us, even to speak reproachfully of marriage is to be guilty and to be professing a doctrine of devils. Do you see what I'm saying? That the word of God tells us that forbidding marriage, forbidding to marry is a doctrine of devils. But Matthew Henry applies that and says, even to speak reproachfully of marriage is to profess 
a doctrine of devils. And also in the third commandment, that is, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. We understand that the third commandment, so I'm taking this from the larger catechism in question number 112, the third commandment requires, among other things, that God's ordinances be holily, I'm reading verbatim here, be holily and reverently used. So in other words, God's ordinances should be used in holy and reverent uses. In thought, it says, in meditation, in word, and in writing. So again, if we, if we begrudge the goodness of God in marriage, and marriage is an ordinance of God, then we are guilty of the sin, the sin of transgressing the third commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Now we see that the Lord God has honored marriage. Marriage is not to be lightly esteemed. We are called as believers in the word of God to have a high esteem of marriage. The Lord God honored marriage, first of all, quite simply and naturally, in the fact that he was the one that instituted it from the beginning, in the garden, before there was ever any sin in the world or in our hearts. God instituted the ordinance of marriage. Secondly, the Lord honored marriage in that the Lord Jesus Christ chose to perform his first miracle, where? At a wedding in Cana, and thereby the Lord Jesus also honors marriage. Marriage is also honored by him in that he taught that the kingdom of God is like a wedding feast in one of the parables. And also, as if these things were not sufficient, God honors marriage by expressly stating as much in the word of God as we find in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, where we read, Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. There's nothing shameful here in marriage, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. You see, there's this opposition. Yes, Whoremongering and adultery is shameful and an abominable sin. But marriage, on the other hand, is honorable in all. And even the marriage bed, the word of God tells us, is undefiled. Undefiled. No shame. Marriage is honorable in all. Let us put away this papist notion that uh, the state of singleness or celibacy is a holier state than the state of marriage. No, it's not. You know, uh, this is off my notes, but uh, Enoch, when he was taken from the Lord, he was taken. He was known, the word of God tells us, I think it's actually in the New Testament rather than the passage in the Old Testament, for his holiness and his uprightness. Enoch was taken. And yet we read that Enoch was married and had many children. And yet by the Lord taking him into the heavens, it is a testimony of his holiness, Marriage is a holy estate. We should not lightly esteem it. We should not degrade it. We we should not think lowly of it. It's an honorable institution of the Lord. And so, if we despise God's good gift of marriage to us, do we not hold then the gift giver in contempt? 
if we despise God's good gift of marriage, do we not hold God himself in contempt because he's the one that gave us this blessed gift? I tell you, brothers and sisters, if you have an unhappy marriage, don't blame your marriage on God's institution. Don't blame the unhappiness of your marriage on the ordinance of God. It should not be surprising to us that when you take two sinners and you join them together in the most intimate bond possible as we see in marriage, it should not surprise us that conflict and trouble will come. But it's not because of the ordinance of marriage. It's not because of the institution of marriage, which God has done and which is good. It's because we are sinners. It's because You, O sinner, married a sinner, and she married you who is a sinner. That is why we have conflict and trouble in marriage. We should not belittle the high esteem of marriage. And so, instead of begrudging the goodness of marriage, let's celebrate it, even as John Milton does in his classic work, Paradise Lost. We read, Hail, wedded love! Hail, wedded love, far be it that I should write thee sin or blame, or think the unbefitting holiest place, perpetual fountain of domestic sweets, whose bed is undefiled and chaste pronounced. Let us move on then to our second head, which is from our text, that the wife of thy youth, she is thy companion. She is thy companion. That is to say that your spouse should be your lifetime companion, even from the days of your youth onward. This expression, she is thy companion, again, just to survey a bit some of these classic Protestant commentaries for the sense of the expression, in the marginal notes of the Geneva Bible, we read that she is thy companion, that is to say that she is one half of yourself. Matthew Poole says it means that Your wife is not your lackey or your slave, but she is, as the annotations of the Westminster Assembly describe, your yoke fellow. Yea, she is one flesh with thee. She is, as John Trapp says, your close friend and partner, the Puritan John Trapp. She is such another as thyself. So the woman is called in Genesis 2, chapter verse 18, a second self, a mate meet or suitable for thee. A piece so cut out just for thee, and she, your wife, corresponds to you well in every point. That is the idea here behind these few simple words, she is thy companion. And I want to go back again to uh, this foundational passage in Genesis. Uh, in, In the opening chapter of the whole Bible, we read of God's creation, and it's remarkable how many times he repeats this expression, it is good. After everything that he makes, he says, it is good. And pardon me for the repetition, but I want you to feel the impact of this, that in the first chapter alone, God says, it is good, 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 it is good. And then he says, it is very good. So as we're reading along in Genesis, as we begin reading the entire Bible, and we're moving along and we finish reading towards the end of chapter 1, it is very good, all these things that the Lord has made. Then we're reading along, we come to a place in chapter 2 where we read, it is not good. 
You know, if we had our eyes open as we read, it seems that we would gasp at that moment. We just heard, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. And now suddenly, it is not good. And what's more remarkable, if you look at the context of where it says it is not good, <laughs> it happens, the Lord declares it is not good before the fall into sin. The Lord God says, before the fall into sin, that there is something in the garden that is not good. Isn't that remarkable? Before there is ever any sin in man's heart. You know, the definition of being sinless means that there's not even an inclination to sin. Before Adam even had an inclination to sin, there was no sin, no corruption. He was made perfectly holy and upright and righteous. In that state... God says, something is not good in the garden. Something is not good. Before sin, before the misery that attends sin, in fact, all misery is only for the reason of sin in the world. Before any misery, before any pain, before any death, theologically by definition, there cannot be any death unless there is sin. Before all these things, God in the garden says, something is not good. Furthermore, think about this. Adam, as a sinless creature before God, must, by definition, have had a perfect fellowship and communion with the Lord God Almighty. Because it's only sin that comes between us and God. It's only sin that breaks our fellowship and communion with God. Adam had perfect fellowship. There are no obstacles whatsoever in his communion with the Lord. You know, we think in uh, modern terms of uh, a lot of uh, irreligious leftist uh, socialist thought is to say that uh, we are not sinners and if we just had a perfect environment around us, then we would behave well, we would behave correctly. But again, look at Adam. He was... (laughs) He was, do you know what the word paradise means? I mean, he was in paradise. I mean, this was a utopia. This is not a utopia like someone like the 16th century Thomas More dreamed up in his book Utopia. This is real utopia. This is paradise. And yet, again, the Lord God said, it is not good. There's something here that's it's not good. And so, what's not good? It says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, that it is not good that the man should be alone. That is what the Lord God says is not good. It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. What's not good? What's not good is that man is lonely. He needs, he needs a friend. He needs a help who is meet or suitable for him. And I know this might sound strange, but God has so made Adam that even though he had perfect fellowship with the Lord, he was lonely. Isn't that remarkable? You see, God made man so that he would not be alone, but that he would be with woman, with his wife. And it's interesting how the Lord brings Adam through this uh, realization, because we read again in, in, in chapter 2 how that the Lord brings all these different animals to Adam to name. And in verse 20 of chapter 2, we read, And Adam gave names to all cattle, and to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found an help meet for him. Now, this is the same expression as what we find in verse 18, where it says, 
I will make him and help meet for him. You can't escape that these phrases are parallel to one another. So what does that mean? It's as if the Lord was teaching Adam that there was no other suitable help for him, even among all the animal kingdom. And so once Adam reaches that conclusion and understands that, then the Lord makes woman for Adam. As we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that the man was not created for the woman, but the woman for the man, even that he would not be alone. Now, again, to quote from this Puritan, uh, Henry Smith, on these words, it is not good that the man should be alone. He says that these words uh, suggest that Adam's life would be miserable and irksome and unpleasant to him if the Lord had not given him a wife. That he who is alone will have thoughts and cares and fears come to him because he has no one to comfort him. Therefore, for mutual society, God coupled together the two, that the infinite troubles which lie upon us in this world might be eased with the comfort and help of one another. Richard Baxter, in his celebrated work, The Christian Directory, states that it is a mercy to have a faithful friend that loves you entirely and it is as true to you as yourself to whom you may open your mind and communicate your affairs and who would be ready to strengthen you and divide the cares of your affairs and family with you and help you to bear your burdens and comfort you in your sorrows and be the daily companion of your lives and partaker of your joys and sorrows. You see, this is a picture of that companionship between man and his wife. Baxter continues to say, And it is a mercy to have so near a friend to be a helper to your soul, to join with you in prayer and other holy exercises, to watch over you and tell you of your sins and dangers, and to stir up in you the grace of God, and remember you of the life to come, and cheerfully accompany you in the ways of holiness. The Puritan Thomas Gattaker, in his work, A Wife Indeed, states, There is no society more near, more entire, more needful, more kindly, more delightful, more comfortable, more constant, more continual than the society of man and wife, the main root source and original of all other societies. And so we come to our next head, uh, the last one, which is the wife of thy youth. And this, I tell you, teaches us from the word of God that the best and proper season of marriage is youth, and that is the season that God has appointed for us to marry. Again, to quote from the Puritan Henry Smith, twice in the scripture the wife is called the wife of thy youth, as though that when men are old, the time of marrying is past. You see, that's the sense of this expression, the wife of thy youth. A.W. Pink, on this idea, comments, Therefore, It is desirable that marriage be entered into at an early age, before the promise of life be passed. You've heard the expression about how a couple is to, a couple in marriage are to grow old together. But what about the idea of them growing up together? When marrying in our youth and growing up together, the couple are knit together together and shaped into their set ways 
together as a couple. And as a result, it will be more difficult for them later to separate. And so we should be encouraged. The youth should be encouraged to marry in their youthful season. And so again, let's survey some of the Protestant comments on this expression, the wife of thy youth. She is whom in your youth you married and has had the best of her time and strength and in age should love and deal kindly with. That comes from Matthew Poole. The idea here is that, man, when you marry a woman in her youth, she is giving you the best of what she has to offer. She's giving you her, her youth, her, her time, her strength, her childbearing years. She is giving you the best of what she has to give to you. And that is the sense of this expression, the wife of thy youth. The annotations by the Westminster Assembly, the wife of thy youth is she whom thou didst marry, listen to this language, in the budding spring and flower of your youth, and both of you have enjoyed the mutual comforts of this marriage, youth winning tenderness of love and continuance in years confirming that love. This, then, aggravates the fault of these men of Judah when, in elder years, they betray the wife of their youth. And lastly, a reformer in Geneva from the 17th century was the first one to translate the Bible from the Hebrew and Greek into Italian. Giovanni Diadati writes that the wife of thy youth is thy first lawful wife with whom Having spent thy youthful days, thou now beginnest to condemn and hate her in her old age. What treachery, what violence. Another point that we just hinted at, which is is important to bring up, is that another indication that youth, quote-unquote, is the rightful season for marriage, is that youth is God's appointed season for bearing children. I got this online, but there is a Mary Kay Shirk, who is a, reg- a certified registered nurse, uh, women's health nurse practitioner, and directory of the Women's Wealth Outreach Program at St. Mary's Health Center in Richmond Heights, Missouri. And she said on this article called The Advanced Maternal Age, The Advanced Maternal Age, that health care providers have traditionally viewed any woman over the age of 35, especially one having her first pregnancy, as a high-risk patient. So you see, even the medical profession tells us that there is a certain age, uh, a suitable, seasonable age of marriage, which is youth, and that that is the season of childbearing for the woman because by the time she reaches the age of 35, she is considered at a, quote, advanced maternal age. I think a helpful way to look at this term youth in this expression, the wife of thy youth, is to think of it in terms of a season in our life. You know, the word of God never tells us that the right age of marriage is some specific numerical age, like 18 or 21 or 30 or whatever you want to come up with. And for us to assert something like that would be legalistic, would be very wrong. But this word of God that says the wife of thy youth teaches us that there is a a suitable season of marriage in our life. And so let us consider 
the seasons of God. Now, when we think about the climate in the beginning, again from Genesis chapter 1, we read that God has ordained the seasons. And we read in verse 14, And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And even after the flood, the Noahic flood, we read in Genesis chapter 8, God promising, Neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done, while the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. So God has ordained the seasons, and he has promised even after the flood that they're not going to cease. They're not going to stop until the very end of time. And so, it's no wonder then that we would also see seasons in our own lives. And scripture, I think, bears this out. For example, in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 29, we read that the glory of young men is their strength, and the beauty of old men is the gray head. So you see that for men in their youth, that's the season where they're noted for their strength. That's the season of their lives when they are known for their strength is in their youth. And also, as a man reaches an older age, it's a season for wisdom. For example, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, we read, for, when the, for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. So there the scripture even uses this metaphor of age in terms of a baby drinking milk and an adult eating strong meat. But the admonishment here is that the men in their age, they should be teachers. But instead, and it's a shameful thing that this is so, they need to be fed again the milk like a baby because they are unseasonable in their lack of wisdom. And so to speak of seasons is to speak of that which is seasonable. But what is seasonable is not always what takes place. What is seasonable is the norm, but not the absolute rule. The season for notable strength, as we said, is in our youth. And yet, we may see a young man who has little strength due to a debilitating disease. Indeed, is it not an aggravation of his condition that as a young man, he is unseasonably feeble? Also, the season for wisdom, for uh, notable wisdom, is in our old age. Yet, do we not find young men who are also wise? Do we not also find old men who are fools? Similarly, we, we would say that snow is for the winter. But this does not mean that it has never snowed in the springtime. And so, I'm, I'm making all these metaphors to make the point clear that just because we are asserting that the doctrine of the word of God here is that the season for marriage is our youth, it's not as if to say that those that are of any older age are barred from marriage. God forbid. Again, as we read in Hebrews chapter 13, marriage is honorable in all. That means for all sorts of people, and that would include in all ages. But we are seeing that the word of God teaches us that marrying beyond the season of our youth should not be the norm, just as it should not be the norm that uh, we would see snow in the springtime or 
that an old man would not be wise or that a young man would not be strong. Do you see? And so, again, uh, we should not be legalistic to dictate a specific age, like, well, whatever number you want to come up with, to be the correct age to marry. The Bible never specifies one specific age, and so we should not do so. And besides all that, the eligibility to marry is far too individualistic for that sort of thinking. But the scripture in our text before us, I tell you, unmistakably teaches us that there is a proper season for us to marry, and that is youth. Let us close with a word of application. We should take heed to our spirit that we deal not treacherously against the wife of our youth, because she is the wife of our youth, our companion, the wife of our covenant. We should put off such treachery, and we should put on the rejoicing in the wife of our youth. We should rejoice in her, as it says in Proverbs chapter 5. And as Puritan John Trapp says, this rejoicing in the wife of your youth will keep you from being ravished with a strange woman or embracing the bosom of a stranger. Rejoice in the wife of thy youth. If you rejoice in her, then you will not be so prone to commit such treachery against her. Let us pray. O blessed Lord God, eternal Heavenly Father, we do praise you, we thank you for all your kindness to us and your goodness to us and how you have thought of all the things that we need, all the things for our cares and our wants and our lives, even, O Lord, to have a helper that is suitable to us in the bonds of holy matrimony. Help us, O Lord, to be faithful not only in our outward actions towards our spouses, but even in our hearts, in our minds, in our thoughts. Grant unto us, O Lord, that faithfulness and fidelity of marriage. And for those, O Lord, who are young and who seek marriage, bless them, we pray, with a godly spouse. Be with them in all their seeking, that as they seek, they may find. And we pray that you would bless them. Hear us now. Please be with us in the remainder of this service. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.